I'm Derek T. Dingle, Executive Vice President and Chief Content Officer for Black Enterprise. Welcome to an all-new episode of Boardroom Chats, hosted by Nationwide. In this edition, we will examine Black participation in corporate governance at a time when a growing segment of corporate America has focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. To evaluate the current state of such representation, I have as my guest one of the nation's top money managers and a leading champion of boardroom diversity, John Rogers, chairman, co-CEO, and chief investment officer of Aerial Investments. Highlighted alongside legendary investors Warren Buffett, Sir John Templeton, and Benjamin Graham as one of the world's greatest investors, John launched Ariel in 1983. He made history by creating the first family of mutual funds managed by African-Americans, expanding his base of individual and institutional investors. John built Ariel into the nation's largest Black-owned asset management firm with $15 billion in assets under management. For more than 30 years, he has promoted Black financial empowerment and wealth building through such vehicles as the Aerial Education Initiative. A member of the BE Registry of Corporate Directors, John serves on the boards of McDonald's, Nike, and the New York Times. And in stressing the diverse boards advance corporate performance and increase shareholder value, he has been extremely vocal about the lack of black board members and has worked to expand the numbers as co-founder of the annual Black Corporate Directors Conference. The event has included a conscience of the conference session in which he has recruited past speakers like Harry Belafonte, the late Congressman John Lewis, civil rights leader Reverend Jesse Jackson, and former President Barack Obama to remind African-American board members that they have a responsibility to advocate for communities of color and fight for a civil rights agenda in the boardroom. He is here today to share his views on the need for greater inclusion at the highest levels of corporate America. John, thank you for joining us. Um, this is, um, you know, it's great to have you as a um, guest on Boardroom Chats. Really glad to be here. I think we've been friends and talking for, I don't know, 35 years or so. So. <laughs> yeah, at least 35 years. Um, I, as I told you before, I remember the first time I received the patient investor newsletter. I was in my office and I said, wow, I said, who's this from? And I said, oh, this is a brother sent to me <laughs> an investment newsletter. So, so, so that tells you how long we've, uh, we've been together and how long Black Enterprise has uh, covered you and have been um, impressed by your um, your achievements. Thank you. Well, you know, this is uh, interesting because we're, um, after um, some 35 years, we're at another inflection point in terms of race in America, another inflection point in terms of looking at how African-Americans can gain opportunities, another period in which you know, corporate America has um, made commitments, you know, over the past year. And I wanted to get your sense because there was a lot of talk 
a lot of announcements about, you know, you know, eradicating racial disparities, creating a level playing field, uh, both for black businesses and within corporate America. And as someone who's been a leading advocate for, you know, corporate blacks, uh, black representation on corporate boards, where do you see us um, African-Americans in terms of corporate board representation? Have you seen a, an increase over the last year? Are we still at the same levels? Is it promising or is there still much to be done? Well, there's still much to be done, Derek, as you know. But one of the things I have to say is that people are, African-Americans are getting opportunities to be on, on boards at un, unprecedented levels. It's just been extraordinary. You know, everyone sort of jumped on board and people realized it's really critical to do the right thing uh, after the assassination of George Floyd and all the turmoil and heartbreak in our country. I think corporate America realizes they've got to open up these boardrooms and it's happening. And as you know, at Ariel, we've tried to be a part of this process for a long, long time. Uh, we can point to, in our 38-year history, at least 50 times where we convinced one of the companies that we own stock in to have their first minority director. So we're really proud to be a part of this process, and we're very engaged in it now. But we've never seen such a receptive audience than we've seen in this last year. Oh, that's, that's great. So are we seeing uh, an influx of new uh, African-American board members, you know, you, you, there's always been a challenge with the whole uh, act of recycling and seeing the same types of individuals on multiple boards. Um, but are we seeing new board, uh, new directors, younger directors, um, you know, are we seeing also new leaders uh, that are African-American on these boards? Well, you're seeing more and more of both, actually. You know, I think uh, we, Melody Hobson and myself, as sort of experienced directors and me sort of being old guys, we continue to get calls. Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, we have to say no because both of us are sort of full up on our board levels. And I think that um, so people are still asking experienced directors to think about a new board, maybe trade a board for this board, for that board. But at the same time, lots of younger directors are getting an opportunity, often for the first time, you know, and it's really, it's really been cool to see. And you're seeing more boardrooms with two or three African-Americans. You know, at Nike, where I'm on the board, there's three of us uh, that are African-American. We actually were four before the late John Thompson passed away, um, you know, and at McDonald's here in Chicago, there's two African-Americans on the board. So I'm seeing more and more of that, that people are making room uh, for African-American men and women, uh, both experienced and those that are getting their first chance. So in this environment, where do you see that there needs to be more change made? Um, are, you know, are you seeing this development mostly with the, say, S&P 500 versus Russell 2000 and those companies uh, that are portfolio companies of private equity firms? Where are the um, areas that need greater improvement from your vantage point? Well, as you and I've talked about, I mean, I may last answer two ways. Um, there's always been a focus on the S&P 500 companies. That's always been the, the history. 
all of a sudden, just in this last year, year and a half, you're seeing private equity finally getting religion and doing the right thing. And the biggest of the big guys are talking about it, KKR, Carlisle, Apollo, all about doing the right thing when we put, when we put African-Americans on these boards. Now, I think that that'll lead to more Russell 2000 companies having African-American directors. And with NASDAQ pushing and pressuring companies to do the right thing, I think you're going to see this just you know, proliferate through all of the public companies in America and many, many, many private companies. So it's really a, a good, good story. We still have the challenges, though, in those smaller companies in particular. And our friend Gabby Salzberger, who you know, has done this research that shows that many of these private equity firms still don't have African-Americans in the C-suite on the companies that they are controlling and taking public. So the general counsels, the CFOs, the CEOs are still dramatically all white males in these private companies. They haven't had the kind of things that we've seen now in the biggest companies in America where you're having black women CEOs, as we know, at Walgreens and TIA Craft and you know, some extraordinary breakthroughs. Um, we're not seeing that in those private companies yet. Yeah, that's, um, you know, that's an interesting uh, dichotomy because as you're seeing you know, a, a greater uh, influx of African-American directors, and I'm talking at the, about the largest uh, publicly traded companies, the, the CEO chairs, you know, gaining the CEO chair is where the challenge is. You know, you, you did mention uh, Rosalind Brewer of Walls Brains. We, we did see uh, Tassanda Duckett. Uh, she was appointed the CEO of TIA. Now, um, Ken Frazier is moving, is retiring as CEO of Merck. Um, but we haven't seen the numbers in terms of, you know, African-American CEOs running these major corporations. And that comes from the board. I mean, in terms of, you know, working with CEO succession, in terms of looking at candidates who will be CEOs. So give us your viewpoint of where we are in terms of African-American CEOs of the largest companies and what needs to be done in the boardroom to ensure a, a flow of more African-American CEOs in those positions. Well, that gets to the heart of a question that you and I have talked about for years and years. You've always been great uh, coming to our Black Corporate Directors Conference with Butch. And you know our message there is we have to get African-Americans to come to come into the boardroom with the spirit that they're going to fight for economic justice, fight for economic fairness once they get in those leadership roles and not just sit idly by and let the white power structure continue to control all these positions. So as you know, at the conference every year, we have a conscience of the conference. It could be Harry Belafonte or Congressman Clyborne or the late Congressman John Lewis, Reverend Jackson, Reverend Sharpton, President Obama have all been there to remind people that we have that responsibility. You know, and Andy Young was terrific one year. It's just been Spike Lee. It's been great, you know, but we have to have that right value system when we get into these boardrooms. And I've been talking to many executive recruiters who have not thought about asking potential directors, well, what have you done for the black community in your history? How are you gonna come onto this board as maybe the first African-American if you haven't shown an interest in our community throughout your business career? I know Charles Tribbett cares deeply about that, You know, our partner at our Black Corporate Directors Conference. And so it's not a coincidence 
that he did the recruiting at, Wal at Walgreens that helped us with Rosalind Brewer. And it's really pretty cool that he also helped get Valerie Jarrett there as a board member. And Valerie has spoken at our conference and realized the importance of fighting for women and fighting for people of color in the boardroom. And then finally, you know, Melody Hobson was a mentor to both Rosalind because Melody is a chairman of Starbucks and worked closely with her. It's on the board of J.P. Morgan Chase and had a great opportunity to get to know T really, really well. So when you get these dynamic black women in the boardroom, they're going to be on the lookout to promote black women for these leadership roles. But we've got to get people who are comfortable in their own skin and comfortable fighting for economic justice for black people. Yeah, you talk about the, um, uh, the, um, the, the conference of uh, black uh, corporate directors. And, and I just want you to share because there's a number of members of our audience who don't know about the, the conference, who doesn't know about the call of action and, and just share that thrust and how that translates today because that, um, or you've been, had that in place for over 20 years now and you've been you know, pushing for this, uh, I would call this courage equation to get people to, you know, bring the uh, civil rights agenda to the boardroom. Uh, but if you can just share with our audience, you know, how it's evolved over the last, um, you know, two decades, two, more than two decades now, and what is your um, view, view in terms of where it is going now? What is the next leg of that conference and how are you driving that, that level of activism? Well, thank you. There's a lot there. And, um, you know, I have to thank my partner in this, uh, Charles Tribbett. I mentioned Charles earlier. He's a senior African-American partner, Russell Reynolds, one of the most successful executive recruiters in the country. And when Charles and I started talking about this roughly 20 years ago, we were both in sync. We said, this is the right thing to do. We need to bring black directors together. We need to all know each other. We need to learn from each other how to be a leader in the boardroom and you know this idea how we can lead around economic justice and fairness in the boardroom was front and center from the very beginning we started with 30 uh, directors at the gleacher center here in chicago with the university of chicago's business school building downtown and over the years we've gotten this now we have over 200 directors you know come and all of the top african-american directors in the country have been there you know people have been on your covers the people you've got on the covers, you know, and the leaders like James Bell, who are willing to be in that boardroom making a difference, and Neil and Youngblood, and this guy shouldn't go down the list because there's too many people, Bruce Gordon, et cetera. These extraordinary people who've come every year and been so supportive of the mission of the conference. Um, we have these three P's that we've all agreed on, and we think that's an important message. So every year we remind people in writing that once you get into the boardroom, we'd like you to remember the three P's that we discuss at the conference every year. Number one, which is actually happening more and more in corporate America, is to measure the philanthropy P, to make sure the dollars are flowing to historically black colleges, um, civil rights organizations, and people who care about the issues that are important to our community. Because typically too many corporations are giving the vast majority of their dollars to the symphony or the opera, the local universities, not thinking about organizations that were there for our community. So that's the first P is philanthropy. The second P is people. And I touched on this a little bit with like Gabby's research. We got to 
keep track of not only the diversity of the whole organization, but in particular the diversity in the C-suite. Because those are the people that are making decisions on who gets hired. They're the ones that decide how the money gets spent. And you know, you just have to make sure that you're keeping track of the C-suite jobs, who's on the management committee, holding these companies accountable, hopefully being able to tie uh, diversity performance to how uh, CEOs are compensated. That's important. So that's the second P is people. And the third one, you know, which is our favorite, is purchasing. And you know, we think that if you want to really build wealth in our community, you've got to do business with Black companies and insist the majority of companies have Black partners and executives on the relationship with your institution. And we learned all that, of course, from Harold Washington when he was mayor of Chicago, Maynard Jackson, my hero, the mayor of Atlanta, you know, Coleman Young in Detroit, Marion Barry in Washington. They insisted that they understood how important it was to have strong Black businesses anchoring their local communities, that we would hire each other, we would do business with each other, we'd bring philanthropy to our local churches and community organizations. It was powerfully important. And you at Black Enterprise understood that very, very well and how important it is to have dynamic companies in the media doing really, really well. So the third P is measuring the purchasing by category. So you can't get away with just doing construction or catering, which are important, but you're doing businesses in all parts of the ecosystem. And we're pushing to get rid of the term supplier diversity. I think that's essential. We stay on message and we get away from this term supplier diversity because our economy has become a professional services, financial services, technology, and media-based economy. There's just no doubt about it. All the data from Forbes to Barron's to all show over the last hundred years how our economies evolved and all these progressive anchor institutions in our community only wanna work with black people when it comes to construction and distribution in the lowest profit margin parts of their spend. So I can't emphasize how important it is to understand that third P purchasing, keeping track of spending by category, getting rid of the term uh, uh, of, of uh, supplier diversity, replacing it with business diversity. And then final point we're being making is we need access to capital but we also need access to customers. And all of us, as we build our businesses, need people to realize they just can't get away with helping us get a micro loan. They need to do business with us. And I just can't overemphasize how important that is. Uh, what we say is um, to have a, a true reciprocal trade between corporate America and, uh, the, and Black America, quite frankly. Uh, you know, in, in terms of ensuring that you know, we no longer have um, what we call a, a trade imbalance, you know, in terms of, you know, the flow of uh, commerce going both ways. You well, know, I would just, can I just jump in there to say, you know, my father was a Tuskegee Airman, you know, an original uh, airman who flew over 100 missions. He always taught me the most important thing is to live up to the commitments that you make to others. Mm. And these big corporations that make a commitment to diversity and inclusion, and these big institutions that do, whether it's you know United Airlines of the world who commit to diversity and inclusion, but then when you go peel back the onion and see how do they spend their money, it continues to go to the same white males. It's the same with 90% of the universities and hospitals in this country. They'll have commitments, but they're not living those values. And so it's just morally wrong to say you're committed to our community, but then all the economic opportunities go to the same white men that have been getting it generation after generation after generation. And the final thing is that we have to highlight the ones that are doing a great job. You know, the McDonald's of the world that are doing a great job. They just announced they're in the process of announcing they're going to be doing more business with black media 
which is terrific. And uh, United, University of Chicago does a great, great work. And, you know, Exelon does a great work. There's others that have done great work. We have to highlight those that are doing really well and then point out those that really talk a good game but don't, don't follow through. Well, as you look at, you know, and, and you broke out the P's and, you know, and, and this is great. Uh, I do want to look at that uh, last P again, purchasing, because in terms of the, the corporate commitments that were stated, a lot of it focused on, you know, the fortification, the financing, the growth, creating opportunities for black owned businesses. You know, is that happening? You know, because I, I you know, I get a number of um, reports from entrepreneurs that said, when is this going to happen? When are we going to see the opportunities? When are we going to see the real financing from corporate America that's going to allow for us not only just to stay in business, but to grow to size and scale so that we can access the contracts that you're talking about? And, and, what, are, and what are the discussions that are being had in the boardroom that makes management accountable to acting on those commitments? Well, I would say here in Chicago, one of the great things, we have what's called our civic committee, which is our pretty much our largest 84, 84 largest businesses in Chicago. And there's a recognition now that our civic committee and our corporate leadership here has to start to do business with black businesses and build them to scale. And they're using the models of some of the Chicago success stories that we talked about. Again, the University of Chicago and McDonald's, Exelon. You know, McDonald's has built out over 20 minority-owned companies that are some of the largest companies on your B100 list. You know, you see them all the time right there in the top 20. And five of the top 20 companies are McDonald's suppliers. You know, this made a real, real difference yeah, for us. So the conversations in the Chicago boardrooms are how can we do this? How can we build businesses of scale? And work in the areas where the real profit margins are. They got this data from McKinsey and BCG as a part of the efforts of our civic committee that shows that you look at the top 14 areas of spend in Chicagoland, of how corporations spend their money. Number one is professional and financial services. Uh, and though that sector has profit margins of five to 20%. Construction, which everyone loves to lead with, came in 10th out of 14 with profit margins roughly zero. So we're starting here in Chicago to understand that you just can't check the box by giving the black people the lowest, least opportunistic opportunities. Um, it's good, we wanna to get to be able to do business with everything. And Dr. King talked about how important for us to be included in all aspects of our society if you wanna move things forward. So I'm hopeful that Chicago can be a model again for the nation that the corporate, room, corporate boardrooms will start to say, let's just not do the micro lending and work with the tiniest businesses but build business, work with businesses of scale that have a chance to get to scale. Because too often, I know you guys have seen that in your enterprise, you know, these decision makers will say, you know, oh, black enterprise have been too successful. We're not gonna, we're gonna find the next up and coming one. People have told me, you know, we're looking for the next John Rogers. Yeah. Well, we're, we're like this big compared to Fidelity or Vanguard or T. Rowe Price or what have you. It doesn't really make any sense. But we've allowed them to think that their idea is they help the tiniest business and not help us get to scale, which is the heart of your question. Yeah. As, you know, as we do the analysis, when you look at purchasing and Black-owned businesses, 
when you look at people and, and black executives, corporations tend to spend a lot of time and energy on entry level, which, you know, granted, you need to have a flow through of, you know, black professionals, you need to have a flow through of, you know, black businesses and helping them start up. But as you said, there's not an emphasis on that, that growth stage, you know, taking people to the next level, whether it's professionally or whether it's, it's in business. You know, how do you change that, that, that thinking? How do you change that mindset? How do you change that practice? You know, I, I know you talked about select few companies, but it has to be much wider than that. And are those companies that are doing the right thing and moving in the right way, are they influencing those companies that have hesitancy in terms of doing it or have ignored, you know, a process of moving, you know, people up to the next level? You know, that doesn't happen enough. There, it's, it's fascinating to me where I'll, I'll be on a board with people who are a board of a company that are doing great things. And then there'll be a director there who is on another big board or is a CEO of another big company. And that institution isn't doing anything. They're not learning anything. And they're not learned anything from the board that they're sitting on. So this idea, I think it's up to us to highlight the superstar companies, to make sure that they become the role models and then hold people accountable that say, hey, if you're sitting on this board and this company's doing the right thing, when you go back to your other boardrooms, you should bring those best practices with you. We think that's really important. The second reminder, which you know well, is we, you touched on this earlier in your question, we need to support the companies that have leaders that not only look like us, but speak out for us. So I always use the example of two people you know well, you know, knew well, Dar Davis and Frank Savage. Yeah. You know, when they were at the Equitable, they showed up everywhere supporting institutions like Black Enterprise, supporting our civil rights leaders that needed support, supporting progressive political candidates that were making a difference for us. That kind of leadership is worth its weight in gold in helping all of us build and grow our businesses. And so I tell people now, it's disappointing when you go to a Rainbow Push convention and not enough Black business leaders are there to support Reverend Jackson. Yeah. You know, we need to be there uh, for Reverend Sharpton. You know, we have to be there for our progressive political candidates, you know, the Maxine Waters, the Joyce Beatty's, the people out there fighting for us, you know, you know, all the people that are doing that, Hakeem Jeffries, Greg Meeks, you know, Robin Kelly. Those are the people, we, if we don't have them in there fighting for us, making a difference along with our civil rights leaders, we can't change what's happening in corporate America and these anchor institutions in our communities. So we have to stay on message around that. We've got to write those checks. We've got to show up. We've got to support those that are fighting, helping us. So, um, you know, you, you talk about that group of executives that Mr. Graves used to call the Buffalo Soldiers, you know, people who <laughs> were willing to stand in harm's way, who were willing to speak out, who were willing to move forward. Uh, we talked about your, your, your conference and what it's doing to instill courage in members. But part of the process is it, you know, selecting, you know, the right board members to come onto boards who are already have that as part of their DNA to, to speak out and to move forward. And since we're looking at a younger group coming in, um, are you starting to see more of that, um, you know, 
ingrained advocacy, you know, for, you know, moving African-Americans forward at the board level? Unfortunately, um, I don't see enough movement in this direction. And I think somehow, you know, I mentioned some of the heroes of mine from who were mayors of prior generations, talked about some of the dynamic leaders in Congress that are today, there today. But I will listen to a lot of, you know, like we all do, listen to a lot of political shows. And even most progressive Democrats are thinking more and more, you know, these things are important, but they're focused on climate change. You know, they're, voting, they're focused on voting rights, which is obviously critical. They're focused on health care. They've gotten away from focusing on building wealth in Black communities and how important and powerful that is. And we need to do that. We all have to make sure that we don't get lost there because Dr. King talked about this. If, you know, we all know this, that our poor health care, our lack of jobs, our poor education facilities, our poor housing, it's all directly correlated to because of to the lack of income and lack of wealth we have in black communities. They're all intertwined. And so we have to get our political leaders to understand that all those other issues are vitally important, but then they've got to realize that what happens when you have strong black businesses. And you've heard me talk about this. George Johnson is another one of my heroes who built Afrosheen and Ultrasheen. But at the same time, he built Soul Train with Don Cornelius. He prepaid three years of advertising when Essence was having difficulty, when Essence was just getting started. He used Burrell Advertising that became the largest black advertising agency in the country. He used my mom's law firm and helped my mom's law firm become one of the largest black owned law firms. And then in his free time, you know, he was responsible for 70 tables at the Urban League dinner and raised money for Dr. King. And by the way, he started Independence Bank that ended up being the number one black bank in the country, according to BE. So he was a one-person ecosystem of providing jobs and philanthropy and role models for our community. And somehow many progressive leaders don't understand that. And we've got we've to pressure them, push them, remind them of the difference, you know, the kind of things that you know, Earl Graves, the difference he's made with his Black enterprise, and, you know, your Black enterprise, our Black enterprise. You know, we know what John Johnson did for our community. And we don't celebrate that enough and remind people how important that leadership is. Well, I'm, you know, obviously Black Enterprise will continue to focus on that from a, um, you know, one, a historic standpoint and from a strategic standpoint. But um, are you encouraged by, you know, seeing the action? For example, a month ago, you had Black business leaders, you know, take out an ad in the New York Times and, you know, um, you were included, you know, Ken Chenault and Ken Frazier, you know, the former CEO of um, American Express and, you know, the, um, you know, soon to be retired CEO of Merck, you know, brought together a group of Black business people to, you know, uh, for full-throated advocacy of, you know, against voter suppression and bringing in corporate leaders. Is that the type of activism that we're going to continue to see? Does that go far enough from, from your, your point? But it got to this, you got at this at an earlier question and I didn't address it completely. If you look at the, the average age of those guys who, were, who actually come to our conference every year and have been, not every year, but have been there many, many times, have been terrific leaders, they're all of a certain age mm-hmm. where they, 
realized what it was like to see us being lynched in the South and to hear the horror stories, to see what happened, um, you know, when, when, when we tried to go over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, you know, and we saw John Lewis getting his head bashed in. We saw people, uh, of course, you know, assassinating Dr. King, what happened to all the four little girls, all that stuff. These guys are of a generation. They remember those most gut-wrenching sacrifices that others made on our behalf. And they feel a responsibility that they understood voting rights are an important part of that. We need to have training programs in all of our institutions to get young people to remember that history. Because a lot of them, as you get to be someone who's 25 years old, this all happened before they were born and they have no connection to it. And they, they've been taught, everyone's told them the world is fair, you know? And, and we gotta find a way to remind people of that. And I tell people last thing, you know, there's so many organizations that are terrific. MLT with Johnny Rice, you know, SEO is a great organization. Twigo, Sue Twigo, they're great organizations. They should be training programs in their organizations. They're training us for Wall Street and giving us opportunities to prepare for Wall Street and go to the right business schools. There should be courses there that remind those young people of the giants of the prior generations that were willing to stand up and fight for economic justice and fairness and realize they should be paying it back when they're 30, 35 years old, going up the ladder at these big institutions to make sure they're advertising in black publications and making sure they're spending money with black lawyers and maybe have a, a, one of the 401k options be a black fund manager, what have you. And understand that we can all grow together and support each other, but it's not happening enough. This next generation needs to be inspired around the importance of strong black businesses. And, and I know that's what black enterprise is all about. Yeah. Yeah, I am, you know, and, and I know we're spending a lot of time on this because it's just this important because we are talking about the next generation. A lot of them are going to be viewing this uh, program. Um, but I would think with <clears throat> George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, that type of activism or outlook would be, you know, starting to, if it hasn't developed, then it would be starting to develop in terms of having a consciousness around these uh, issues. I think, it, and, it, and again, I've said this already, so the risk of being repetitive, but, you know, those that are the progressive young people are going to be out, you know, marching in cities because of the horrific death of George Floyd and some of the other atrocities that have happened uh, around this country in this last several years. You know, we saw Laquan McDonald here in Chicago, you know, getting shot, one shot after another, after another, after another, and Thank God it all came public so we could see that, that horrific, horrific death and understand what we need to do to try to change that kind of behavior in these wayward, the wayward policemen that are you know, propagating all of that. That is, um, so it's important that people are focused on those issues. Those are vitally important to our society. And again, voting rights are important. Healthcare rights are important. Stopping the violence of, in our communities. Um, you know, stopping the gang warfare in our communities. And again, making sure the police are treating our citizens fairly. All that is critically important. But if we're not economically strong, we can't achieve any of these goals. You know, Dr. King said, if we, we get the lunch counters open in Southern cities and our people can't afford to buy a hamburger to sit at the lunch counter, what have we accomplished? You know, and so we got to remind people that we need to be full participants in our, economic ecosystem 
to be able to have a chance to solve all these problems that are plaguing us and all the racism and the systemic racism and the unconscious and conscious bias that's still at the heart of our society. But we need dollars to do that. We also need dollars to, to get our political candidates supported and our civil rights organizations supported. If we don't have economic wealth, those institutions cannot have the strength that they need. And, they, and they, they need the dollars to be coming from the black community so they can fight for us more effectively. So at the core of what you're, you're saying is that, yes, we have to fight against these racial inequities, but it takes having a, um, it takes a focus on economic equity. It takes a focus on wealth building. It takes a focus on expanding our business space and bringing them to size and scale and using our influence in corporate America to really make that happen. You know, it's not going to happen. That's going to be the key to dealing with all these other challenges that are facing our communities. And exactly. that's why to have that training for the next crop of board members that are gonna be uh, coming into uh, corporations. And I would just say the last thing I'd say on that is, I learned that from Earl Graves. I learned that from Maynard Jackson in Atlanta. I learned that from Harold Washington here in Chicago. It wasn't something that I came up with. They understood that. It was deep in their DNA and, their, and understood that it all came together to make our community stronger. So we just got to remind people of that, Derek. What, what makes you, um, you know, and, and this has been a great conversation, what makes you optimistic? What do you see that has um, that has happened that has you know that communicates to you that the the commitments the change can be lasting has it been the the partnerships that you uh, Ariel has developed with corporate America and some of the other BE100s companies that have developed with corporate America to drive black business forward is it the the fact that we do have a number of efforts to focus on the influx of black board members, whether it's what you're doing with the conference or what Deborah Lee's doing with the Monarch Collective or the new development between uh, the Executive Leadership, Conf uh, um, Executive Leadership Council and the National Association of Corporate Directors. What really makes you see that there is um, a light down at the end of the tunnel and that we can get on the right track in terms of you know, moving ourselves forward from a, a business and corporate sense. Yeah, I wouldn't start with the things that you listed because I continue to think there's so much embedded there where people wanna be in the boardroom, but again, as I've said several times, no one wants to be held accountable to fight for our community once they get in the boardroom. And no one wants to be reminded of that, that they have that responsibility. Gotcha. What does give me hope is this most progressive Congress that we've had in the country's history. And, you know, working closely with Maxine Waters, Joyce Beatty, you know, you know chairs the uh, Congressional Black Caucus, uh, chairs the subcommittee on the Financial Services Committee. She's pushing banks and financial institutions to do the right thing and pushing hard. I mentioned some of the New York leaders that, you know, whether it's Hakeem Jeffries, or Greg Meeks, who are making a huge, huge difference. You know, Robin Kelly here in Chicago fighting for against gun violence and all the rest. Those are the people that give me hope because they're willing to tell, you know, speak truth to power. 
They're not there just to make white leadership comfortable. And you know Maxine well. I mean, she's in there fighting for us. But now, because she controls, because Democrats control the Congress, and she's chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, she has this enormous impact. She has subpoena power. The folks have to listen to her now. That Five years ago, they didn't have to listen. So that's what gives me hope, is that leadership there. And then we have a progressive White House getting rid of the you know, Donald Trump, who did not fight for us, of course, did not care about us, was hostile to black businesses, hostile to black leaders. He didn't hire them at Trump, Trump, uh, Trump companies. He didn't hire them in the White House, didn't put them in the, us in the cabinet. So now we've got a progressive presidency that's doing all the right things and a progressive vice president that cares about doing things the right way, following in President Obama's footsteps. So all those things give me hope. But it comes from this political empowerment, because as we know that's what changes behavior in corporate America is political empowerment. The people care about us. Well, John, um, you know, before I, I leave, I do want you to, to share with me, uh, um, you know, in terms of looking at, at wealth, in terms of looking at history, uh, can you share with us? Um, from your perspective, a bit of your personal history as we're looking at the uh, centennial of the uh, Wall Street, um, you know, Black Wall Street, um, you know, uh, massacre, uh, you know, you know, you know, coming from Tulsa, Oklahoma, your family was very much involved in developing, you know, one of the, um, you know, communities, seminal communities that of Black prosperity and wealth that were just, you know, devastated a century ago. And in fact, we're still trying to recapture some of that. If you can offer some of your personal reflections, I think our, our audience would love to hear that. Well, well, thank you. You know, I mentioned earlier that you know, my dad was a Tuskegee Airman and, you know, came to Chicago at 12 years old as an orphan and, and was able to really move our family forward through the GI Bill and the opportunity to go to law school where, she, where, she, where he met my mom. And my mom came up in a completely different way. Her grandfather was J.B. Stratford, who owned the Stratford Hotel in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, that prior to being destroyed during the Tulsa Race Massacre, was arguably the largest Black-owned hotel in the country. And after the massacre, he lost everything. And he had been uh, taken to the convention center. He was basically under arrest. He found some way to escape. He got to Kansas City where he met uh, my grandfather, C.F. Stratford, who used his legal skills to stop my great-grandfather from being extradited back to Tulsa, where he would have been jailed. He, he had been accused of being one of the insiders of the riot, which, of course, was totally false. And he possibly could have been lynched. You know, it was something that was just so horrific at that time. So my mom always says that she was inspired to go to the University of Chicago Law School and become the first black woman to graduate from that law school in 1946 by watching her father save her grandfather's life with his legal skills. And so she became a pioneering lawyer. My grandfather was also a pioneering lawyer because not only did he save his father's life, but he also started two uh, black bar associations, uh, one National Bar Association, the Cook County Bar Association, he helped argue the case of Hansberry versus Lee in the Supreme Court that uh, shut down the restrictive covenants that were here in Chicago that didn't allow us to live freely where we should have been allowed to live. So I was really fortunate to have a list of 
your pioneering parents who are very courageous, who are willing to speak up and, and fight for our community. And, uh, you know, starting with J.B. Strapper, where he was just known in Tulsa for being so outspoken. And that's why they wanted to accuse him of helping to start those riots, which, again, was totally false. But I think uh, as I get older, I realize there's something in the DNA of our family where we really feel like it's so important to speak up and speak out, to do what the late Congressman John Lewis uh, said. When you see something that's unfair, that's not right, you know, we have a moral responsibility to speak up, to make good trouble, you know, fight for change. Well, I think that your, your family's history is inspiring. I think you've, um, you know, sort of come full circle from, you know, from, a, from the tragedy, you know, from, you know, from a, a period of optimism to tragedy to once again looking at wealth building, the political process, civil rights as drivers for us. To, um, to advance in this society. And I think that story needs to be told and continues to be, need to be told to uh, many generations as a source of inspiration and for us to look at you know, our history and see that we can advance, but it's going to take um, one, continued vigilance, speaking out, you know, political power, and most importantly, uh, finding a, a path to um, economic parity. So, um, John, this has uh, been a great conversation. Uh, I always enjoy talking with you. Um, I always learn something new when, once I uh, talk with you, and, and I'm sure our audience did. And uh, thank you for being a part of Boardroom Chats. Well, thank you. Love, love working with you. You've made such a difference in, with your career and you know, working for such a great institution at Black Enterprise. Well, thank you. Thank you.